Welcome to 5-Minute Finance, a podcast that explores topics that are impacting your money. Join us as we discuss what is moving the economy, markets, stocks, and personal finance. This podcast is for entertainment and informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Before acting on any financial advice, you should consult a financial professional who can review your specific financial situation. Any opinions expressed by the hosts or guests are their own and do not reflect the opinion of LVM Capital Management. Clients or employees of LVM Capital Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in the podcast. Welcome to 5-Minute Finance. Tyler and Chuck here today. Chuck and Jordan just got back from the NATFA conference a few weeks ago. And one of the main topics there is estate planning. And one of the presentations was discussing estate planning mistakes and some things to avoid that. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And so just to kind of get us started, Chuck, can you talk a little bit about what the current estate tax exemption is and then maybe some of the changes expected over the next couple of years? Yeah, thanks, Tyler. Yeah, the state tax exemption right now, this is the amount of assets that can be transferred between us uh, individuals is at $12,290,000. And this is adjusted amount. It goes up every year. And that is the 2023 amount. But uh, what's going to change in 2026 will be that the exemption will go back down to an inflation adjusted amount that started at $5 million. Uh, so if we were doing the math where we think it's going to be in 2026, will be closer to six, six and a half million dollars versus where it is today, which is double that. Yeah. So that means there will be a lot more folks that'll be subject to the state tax. And can you talk a little bit about what that means? So if, let's say if the state exemption goes to five and a half million dollars, let's say you have a $10 million estate at, at passing, what's that difference and what does it mean in terms of tax to your estate? Yeah. So today the top estate tax rate is 40%. And the amount above this exemption at the, let's talk about a married couple, at the end of the second person's death would be subject to potentially that 40% rate. Now, in 2026, that rate becomes 50%. So if you're above the threshold, the amount that is exposed above the threshold, let's say it's a million dollars, it could be you know, 50%. Interestingly enough, there are some states that have a state inheritance tax, like uh, New York, for instance. Do you know that the exemption in New York for New York State is $6 million, But if you are $6 million $1, that the entire $6 million is subject to a 50% state state tax. So that's a pretty draconian thing and something that you may want to try to avoid by moving assets out of that tax. We'll see, even if it means giving to charity. Right. Yeah, so you could see some significant taxes paid above that level. All right, so let's talk a little bit about some of the mistakes being made. And as you kind of led into this nicely in terms of giving to charity, what kind of assets should clients be giving to charity or or what style of assets should be given to charities at death? IRA assets. We know that if you leave those assets to your children or heirs, they'll pay income taxes on the Uh, future withdrawals from the accounts. But a charity does not pay income taxes. So to fix that uh, or to name a charity as a beneficiary of your IRA is hugely beneficial. This means that if you have a will or trust and you've named a bequest, 
go back to your estate planning attorney. Tell them that you're going to not give out of your estate, but you're going to name those specific charities in your IRA and we'll name them as a percentage. It's really hard to do that as an amount. So just beware. Uh, there are some estate tax issues relative to that, but we're going to name charities of estates. I've even had clients segregate their IRA into two accounts and naming one just solely for the charity and then the other for their heirs uh, if it's a significant IRA. Yeah, that's a really good idea. So recapping that, IRS are a little bit better to pass to, to charities versus uh, your potential other heirs. Looking at another item here, splitting assets between heirs. And when doing that in terms of mistake would be not considering the tax impact to those heirs. So talk a little bit about that, Chuck. Yeah. You know, this is an interesting point that Bob Morrison, uh, who was the presenter at the conference, talked about that sometimes you have children that are doctors and lawyers and make a ton of money and their income taxes are huge. And then you have other children that might be teachers or you know, maybe they work for a nonprofit and they don't make as much money. So the value of the assets being given to the children that maybe have a lower income tax rate, maybe you would give them more of the IRA percentages versus the Roth IRA, which of course no income taxes is due on that. Maybe that would go to the higher income earning. And then that's a way to equalize. Uh, that's fairly technical. I think for the most part, I tell people to try to keep it simple when it comes to estate distributions. And certainly it makes it a little bit more understandable for the heirs. So I don't know that I would necessarily do that, but it's certainly something to give some thought to if that condition exists in, in your family. Yeah. What about potentially having kids pay the parent's tax bill for a Roth conversion? Yeah. I mean, again, the kids, if they have a lot of money and they know they're going to inherit an IRA that they're going to have to pay a ton of tax on, mom and dad are the 15, 20% tax rate. Yeah, mom, we'll pay for the, we'll pay for the conversion. We'll give you the tax money so that we can, when we inherit these assets, they're going to be inherited with zero tax to do. So that's a great arbitrage. Yeah. All right. What about in terms of estate tax returns, the surviving spouse not filing a 706 estate tax return? Yeah. So this thing uh, came about, uh, I think, I can't remember the tax act. If it was uh, the 2018 tax act, uh, it might've been before that, to be honest with you, 2012. But the bottom line is, is that the surviving spouse should be filing an estate tax return for the deceased spouse to preserve the maximum amount of that spouse's unused estate exemption for their estate. Right, it's a big mistake if you just say, "Oh, well, we're going to use the unlimited marital deduction to transfer these assets," and then don't file the estate tax return because then you lose any of the unused amount of the deceased spouse exemption. So this is one of the critical things you should be talking to your attorneys, your CPA, on whether that is meaningful for you. And then if the spouse, uh, the deceased spouse, if that event happens, then you'd, you'll be prepared to go ahead and, and file that. Yeah. All right. Now in terms of ownership and titling of assets and not being aligned to what the estate plan is currently written out as. Can you talk a little bit about that, Chuck? Yeah. I mean, this is a mistake that can get made where you decide that one child is helping you a lot. And so you decide to put them on your checking account because it makes it easier for them to write checks and bills for you. But when you pass away, that child, if it's a joint owned account, is now 100% owner of that account at the exclusion of any other children that you have. So there has to be some kind of understanding that if you want to leave something equally that all the children 
you know, are named on the account as well, or that there's going to be some transferring or gifting to happen to make things equal. Nine times out of 10, this is not the biggest mistake in the world because most parents that need that kind of assistance from their children, it's kind of understood. Yeah, it's all good. And there's not a significant amount of assets in the account to begin with, but still something that ought to be mindful of. I mean, you can put your child on your joint title on your house and wow, that's a big asset to be transferring directly to them without sharing with the other kids. Again, all that has to be talked about as, as a family. Yeah. And then in terms of beneficiaries, you got two mistakes here. So first being not checking your current IRA beneficiaries or life insurance beneficiaries and potential impact there. Oftentimes we see one spouse has identified a set of beneficiaries and maybe there's a child that predeceases. Maybe there's an idea that we want some of this money to go to the grandchildren of that deceased child. You need to make sure that your beneficiary designations on your right align with that. And again, that's something you talk about with your financial advisor. If those that, that kind of situation exists. But that's why you need to review these regularly. You can't just set it up and let it go. You have to at least once a year or, or so checking in, it goes that the way I want it to operate. Yeah. So to that point in terms of if you want that certain percentage to go to the heirs of that one beneficiary, we're talking about per stirpes versus per capita. Can you touch on that and what that means? Yeah. So a per stirpes is exactly as you noted there, that it will go down according to the lineage, right? If that child is gone, then it will go to their children, right? But a per capita situation is a situation where if that child passes away, that whole line of family, maybe it was just the child themselves, which is why you would set this up and you know maybe they were a, an only child or a single child, but your other beneficiaries then take the share that would have gone that, that way. So those can be meaningful. Again, oftentimes advise clients sit down with their financial advisor, their attorney, even their CPA to kind of review, is this the way it ultimately is supposed to operate? Yeah. And how do contingent beneficiaries play into this as well? Well, in an IRA, if the primary beneficiary is not there, then whoever's named as the contingent takes over. I think the biggest problem I see relative to this is that people don't name contingent beneficiaries. So then it just becomes the estate and that isn't necessarily the best beneficiary or aligned with the wishes that they want going forward. Right. And then do you want to talk a little bit about making sure that you are updating. I don't know if there's a, a regular recommended updating of trust and wills along with those kind of beneficiaries. When should you be looking at updating trust and wills? Well, you know, we used to say every 10 years, I think that's become every five years now. It just wills and trusts have to be updated relative to the beneficiaries. More importantly, too, when we're talking about IRA accounts, I mean, you can update the IRA account beneficiaries without updating your will and trust. I mean, they're, the trust and the will control the we'll call them probatable assets, taxable accounts and homes and uh, real estate, that sort of thing. But an IRA is uh, determined, its distribution is determined by the beneficiary designation, just like a life insurance policy is. You don't have to look to the will and trust to determine who, who where that money goes. You just look to the beneficiary designation. And so if we're looking at beneficiary designations on uh, retirement accounts every year, we should at least be looking at the wills and trusts 
for the distribution of those other assets. And by the way, unless there's a pour of a will that's drafted, if the asset isn't titled in the name of the trust, it's not necessarily in the trust. I mean, again, you got to make sure that if you want your house to flow that way, if you want your joint checking account to flow that way, you should be naming a transfer on death as uh, the beneficiary of that so that the trust instructions take over at the point that both parties have passed away. Yeah, absolutely. And then in terms of, we see this every once in a while, but older clients or even clients with a shorter life expectancy, gifting assets with a low cost basis. How could that be a mistake? Right. Well, right now we have something called the step up in basis. We talked about it a little bit earlier here, but uh, that is where the at death, whatever the determined market value is, becomes the cost basis. And the reason that's significant is because the capital gain, right? You, When you compute a capital gain, you look at what you paid for versus what it's worth. And for clients that bought a house 20, 30, 40 years ago, guess what? Their house is more expensive today than it was back when they bought it. But the good news is a step up in basis rules, step up that cost to the value of the asset on the date of death, and it eliminates any capital gain. So if an inheritor wants to sell that asset they're not going to have to worry about capital gains tax as associated with that asset. So that's a great thing. And so your question here about older clients gifting large assets with low basis. Yeah. Sometimes if we're at the end of life, just hold on to that asset. I can see giving up a little bit of that, maybe contemplation of passing away. You want to let them know, hey, I love you and and I want to give you an I love you gift. Just don't make it too huge, <laughs> you know, because the beneficiaries will love you as well when they don't have to pay a big tax bill at the end of the day. <laughs> and so now looking at POA, power of attorney, what is the mistake there sometimes you see for clients? Yeah. I mean, obviously power of attorney is needed when there's incapacity and when the owner of the asset's no longer able to manage their own affairs. And not having a power of attorney is just a nightmare. We're talking about court process. We're talking about additional expenses for someone to be appointed as the authority. There could be confusion about who's the right person to do that. So getting a power of attorney set up, and that's not just for financial affairs. That's also for healthcare decisions. That's also for uh, medical directives, uh, you know, the HIPAA laws now require some of that. So you really ought to, when you go get your trust and will updated, they really ought to be, uh, the attorney would be providing you with updated durable power of attorney and medical directives to give to your loved ones who are going to have to be making decisions when you can no longer make those. And and to not have that set up is is a mistake. <laughs> Yeah, and it can, can provide a challenge for kids potentially. No, no doubt, no doubt. Another one I'm adding here is not funding a trust. Can you talk a little bit about um, why that would be a mistake? Yeah, I think that you a lot of uh, sometimes people have trusts created, and then uh, as we were talking about earlier, they never go to the extra effort of retitling the account so that it's clear that the trust is the owner of the account. And in most cases, revocable living trusts, the account tax identification number is just the individual social security number. There's no loss of control. There's no loss of anything else. It's just a matter of making certain that the account titling is proper. But again, we get the trust drafted and then we didn't tell the financial advisor, hey, I got a trust. Or we get an updated trust drafted and we're like, hey, I'd like to change the name of this trust. Uh, So those are the things that uh, you need to be aware of. Yeah. I think another big one is the house too, making sure that's titled in, in the name of the trust. Yeah. And I I would say where we're at now with estate planning, 
I think you can go with a much simpler estate plan, like using transfer on death and being just mindful of where your beneficiary designations are on your IRA and your retirement accounts. And where the estate tax is now, I would say that a trust isn't nearly as important except for second marriage and third marriage and situations where you've got two families, you've got some differences there that a trust really needs to address. If it's just a straightforward situation, I don't think there's much. But if we're dealing with any nuanced complexities, then we're going to have to have an attorney draft a trust that articulates the individual's wishes. Yeah. And then- it kind of, as we mentioned earlier, you know, we, we see the estate tax exemption coming down in the next few years. What about considering gift exclusions annually? And, and what, is, what does that mean? Yeah, every person can gift up to, well, in 2023, it'll be $17,000 a year to any person uh, without having to report it on a tax form. Okay. And uh, you can just by regularly applying that keep your estate in check. Uh, The caveat on the concern I would have is that you just don't want your beneficiaries to become dependent upon you as things could change. So there are other vehicles, you know, you could buy an insurance policy and you know, use those to help pay premiums for an insurance policy. You could create a trust and just put those in and invest it and then have the trust pay securities at some point later on. Or you could give the funds directly. A lot of times I see parents do smaller gifts at Christmas and, and holidays and then maybe do something alternatively through other other means. But it is a good way to continue to manage the growth of the estate going forward. Yeah. And I think you brought up a good point there at the end there other means, right? So what are some of the other means in terms of direct payments that would be outside maybe of that gift exclusion? Yeah. Like the life insurance, right? If you're paying a life insurance premium on your life and then you name the children as the beneficiaries, then they would get the life insurance proceeds uh, and the gifts to the trust don't have to go directly to them. It goes into a trust for their benefit at your passing. So there are other means. I don't know if you were thinking about other besides that. Yeah. I was thinking in terms of direct payments for education or, oh, yeah. or yeah. Uh, medical expenses. Excellent idea. Yeah. I mean, that's those aren't even included as, as gifts at all. And so there's really no limit. I mean, if your child's going to Harvard and they've got to pay $70,000 of tuition, if you write that tuition check, there's no gift tax implications for that. Similarly, if the child has, you know, maybe some severe health situation, maybe they have spina bifida or something, and you're paying for their medical costs, you don't have to worry about gifts for those. Right. All right. So that's uh, not a complete list, but I think we went over quite a few here. Hopefully that helped in terms of finding some errors, hopefully that are that are not in your current estate plan. And if you have any questions related to those, or please feel free to reach out to us or your financial advisor or your estate plan attorney and make sure we correct some of these errors. Chuck, anything else you wanted to add before we close out? No, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to kind of share that. I mean, we're together as family here. Uh, and uh, so if you guys need anything, just reach out to us and we'll we'll help you as you need. All right. Great. Thanks, everybody. Feel free again, reach out podcast at lvmcapital.com.